Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 66 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. Today is Tuesday, March 27th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, how's your bracket? Uh, okay, you know you got to stop asking me about the bracket. Why? Just because I have two and almost had three Final Four teams and you have, wait, what was it? Was it? We don't need to talk about the bracket. I never filled out. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Talked about it in some past episodes. But you know what's I'm even sure more that... important? You know what Thursday is? What is Thursday? Thursday is opening day. Thursday is opening day. Can and, we, can and, we and, talk about something besides college basketball? And, and our listeners, our listeners may not know that one of the things that I think early in our friendship um, led us to realize that we were going to be friends for quite a long time, or at least me, was yeah. our our mutual <laughs> love of of the 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 amazing hapless New York Mets. M E T S Mets. Um, they've made it hard to, to maintain the enthusiasm over time. But, oh, to uh, the contrary, right? It's it's like they, <laughs> they, they lift you up and then crush your soul and then lift you up. It's like, you yeah, know, you're just... Not so feeling. Um, uh, but so, I'm, I'm going on Thursday. Oh, are you? Wait, going where? New York, opening day. Let's go Mets. I'm super impressed that you're doing that. You're a way better <laughs> fan than I am. When I, when I was young growing up, so Dwight Gooden was, of course, the, oh, the yeah. opening day starter for many years. And my, my dad used Doc. to write the same note to my teachers every year, which is, please excuse Stephen from school today. He has to go see the doctor. <laughs> That's good. Uh, could have been a lot worse. Could have been, uh, you know, Daryl Strawberry. Yeah. Probably did need to go see a doctor. Yeah, he to, well, he has to go see the straw. I don't know. Look, in the frivolity section at yes. the end today, we should get into this. And I think we might want to talk a little bit about uh, the related topic of fantasy sports. But between now and then, what should we talk about? Is there anything to talk about? In- you know, it's been a slow news week, uh, but maybe we can talk about a few things. We've got, uh, well, what have we got? So, I mean, among the many other things that happened in you know the last week, um, Congress, as part of the 2,332-page omnibus spending bill that the president almost vetoed, um, passed the Cloud Act, which you know we're going to spend, I think, some more time in a future episode talking about, but at least for now we're going to talk about its potential implications right. on the pending Microsoft case in the Supreme Court. We've had some interesting developments in the military commissions, um, including the declarations, the competing declarations from Secretary Mattis and Harvey Rishikoff about why the former fired the latter. We've had a really weird development in the Nashiri abatement case. I gotta say, the Millicoms never let us down they on this really, show. They really don't. It's like, that's the bread and butter. Every week we can tell you the latest twists and turns. It's kind of a telenovela. But we've been, I mean, you and I have been studying the military commissions really for 16 years, and I don't recall any period in their history where there was this much no, regular it's way activity. more interesting than it used to be. Yeah. Which just just not, for the service of not the a show, good thing. I guess. No. So, so we're going to talk about what's happened with the um, Nashiri case, including some surprising and interesting developments on that front. Um, we're going to spend some time talking about something we really sort of alluded to last week, but didn't have enough information at the time to really reflect on, which is the Austin bomber. Um, yep. You know, near closer closer to home, sort of how that fits into broader conversations about the sort of slippery distinctions between domestic and international terrorism. And, and the fuzzy line between legal categories mm-hmm. and categories of just common usage about how we talk about things, which sometimes people say, well, those are policy categories. Sometimes it's a political category. Yep. Whatever. We're going to we're gonna wrestle with that a bit. Um, we want, you want to talk a bit about the sort of the, the AQIM strike in Southwest Libya, right? The, the U.S. use of force against al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and what that tells us about the scope of the conflict today with al-Qaeda and how, you know, is it expanding? If so, in what directions and along what axes? 
Yep, that's uh, you've got geography there, and you've got organizational scope, mm-hmm. and so that's an interesting sort of marker about where we are currently in the, the scope of the conflict with Al Qaeda. And we're we're going to relegate, I think, the other eight things to a lightning <laughs> round. So there's I love a, the lightning round. Um, perhaps I mean, in some ways, maybe the most important thing that happened in our field in the last week was the um, sacking of General H. R. McMaster and the hiring of John Bolton, effective April 9th, as the new National Security Advisor. I know you are excited about this. Um, I, I I I literally, I mean. Karen tweeted about this. That I literally walked up to the porch when I got home that night and said, "We're all going to die." No, um, not all of us. Okay, just you know, many people are going to die. <laughs> I, so I, I am definitely concerned. Maybe not as concerned as you are. Fair so enough. We'll, we'll find some points of disagreement there. No, totally. Point. Okay. Um, we have the sixty, the expulsions of sixty Russian diplomats. Um, by the U.S. government and the closure of the Seattle consulate. Going to hit them where it hurts, Bobby. That's right. That's we, right. We have the revelation that Guccifer was, in fact, a Russian agent, the guy who hacked the DNC emails. I am shocked by that one. So am I. We have the indictment last week of the Iranian hackers. There's a, a good old-fashioned non-election-related national security indictment by DOJ. Um, we have the actual Hipsy report on the collusion investigation, which Bobby remarkably has has not gotten a lot of attention. No, uh, that actually, you know, my view on this. I'm happy be, about that yeah. because, frankly, the whole thing. Let their 15 minutes the, be up. the less let the less we say about that, the better, in my view. So, lightning round worthy, maybe. Maybe we have uh, a bunch of counterterrorism indictments in ordinary criminal cases that you want to chat about. Um, I, I might say a quick word about all of the trouble President Trump is having finding a good lawyer. There's never a good lawyer when when you need one if you're well, the president. I will, I will say this about that: that um, you know, for those who teach professional responsibility in every law school, this is a required course. Um, people sometimes critique that course, saying, "Oh, you know, it's just it's a boring course, etc." You, you could you could make that course really come alive oh. with some of these stories. I mean, I feel like you can make a lot of things come alive Absolutely. these days just that maybe didn't used to be quite so. Um, like, for example, right? Is it unconstitutional to ask questions on the census? That might disincentivize people from participating. This is a new development. Oh, you think it might be unconstitutional? That we'll have to chat about that. So it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, so the, the you know the Fourteenth Amendment, um, Section Two, says the census is supposed to count all persons. Um, last night, right, the government announced that they're going to include a citizenship question on the twenty twenty census. I think this raises at least an interesting question about whether including a question that may very well suppress participation by entire communities. Well, let's definitely add that yeah. to the lightning round. Um, and then you know um, three. Three hours in, when we finally get there, um, maybe we'll say a quick word about fantasy sports. All right. So, uh, Cloud where, act. where do we start? Uh, so, again, we are not going to go into the details on this episode of exactly what the Cloud Act does. Uh, suffice to say, for now, that it's responding to a, a twin set of challenges. One, um, as exemplified by the Microsoft versus Ireland pending Supreme Court case, there's this question of whether the existing authorities for compelling production of, of stored information in the hands of, of somebody like Microsoft, uh, whether the existing authorities for doing that can apply when the company elects to store that data or is, is storing that data outside the United States. So yeah, the company's here and the data could be called relatively easily to the desk of somebody in the appropriate position here in the United States, but it would be calling it from a server in another overseas in an overseas location. So the idea is that somehow the, the, the writ of authority under the Stored Communications Act would not run that far. So that's one question. And then there's a mirror image problem where foreign governments conducting their own criminal investigations, they want to get information from Microsoft or Google or whomever. 
and then run into the same problem. Or more to the point, the foreign government decides or the foreign courts decide to compel production and Microsoft and Google and the others find that under America's Stored Communications Act, they're not act- that doesn't count. That it's not one of the heads of authority under which they can produce. So they're caught in a double bind. And the Cloud Act is is a the culmination of a long running effort to try to find some kind of way forward on this. And later we'll unpack the details. Um, for now, Steve, we need to talk about the Fed Court's impact of this. What does this mean for the pending litigation in Microsoft versus Ireland? Yeah, I mean, so this, uh, well, so U.S. versus Microsoft. Is um, it? Yeah. Oh, why right. do we always call it Microsoft versus Ireland? I then? don't know. Is it um, just because you know, <laughs> that's just. It sounds more appropriate. Okay. <laughs> Although it's Microsoft in Ireland. So um, it really, I, I've been calling it Microsoft versus Ireland. It's U.S. This whole versus time. Microsoft. Mm, interesting. Well, I think in the district court it was in re application of the United States for an order under Section 2703D of the Stored Communications well, Act. And normally I would say, like, we need to settle this. We need a, a catchy title we can all agree on. But uh, maybe the here. whole point is we're not going to ever talk about this case no, so, again. So at the oral argument earlier this month, I mean, I think the, the justices were all suggesting that they hope, that they were hoping Congress would take this thorny issue off of their hands. I mean, of course, that was one of the – I think it was Judge Lynch. Well, someone rid me of this meddlesome case. Exactly. Um, and Congress may have obliged. Now, now, I actually don't think that as a formal matter, passage of the Cloud Act moots the case because the question was whether the order at issue in this case, which was issued before the Cloud Act came on the books, um, was a valid order under the Stored Communications Act, right? And the Second Circuit said no. Um, the Cloud Act doesn't change that question because that's about what the district court did at the time the order was sought. But as a prudential matter, it's not hard to imagine the court thinking that you know, whatever was true at the time the government initially applied for the 2703D order, let's go back and start over. Well, and since the theme of this term of the court seems to be to do as little as possible. So far. So far. No, no, no. So, so I think. <laughs> well, but even, even if there's a big rush, which I guess there has to be, they can't get rid of all these cases, there's still so few of them. Yeah, well, so, and they only decided one case this morning, right? And so we're going to get to April. Um, is, I, this like, is this like a government shutdown? Is this sort of, did they put, uh, you know, is the Trump administration and trying to, you know, get this to be like the State Department where it too can't do much? I have a different theory um, that has nothing to do with Dalmazi. Um, so my, my theory is that there were a bunch of really big, major contentious cases early in the term. So Gummed up the works. Um, partisan gerrymandering, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, Masterpiece Cake Shop, right, in December. Um, Maybe Carpenter. Carpenter. And that the justices are so, like, deep into those cases and into, like, big fights in those cases that they're consuming all the oxygen. Because yeah. it's, the yeah. only, it's the only explanation that would explain why three different things are true. Why they're not deciding cases as quickly as possible, why they're hearing fewer cases, and why they're not moving on pending applications on their orders docket as quickly as they usually do. They're busy with something. And I think that the only explanation is they're busy with the cases that have already been argued. It is kind of funny because at one level that makes total sense. On the other hand, they're pretty capable people. They're surrounded by super capable <laughs> clerks. Uh, it's, it's not that much work. No, but I mean, I guess, right, the, so one can imagine, I mean, there's, this is an, one of, we've talked briefly before about the quirk that is the timing of the Supreme Court's term and how late in-term opinions tend to be a little more rushed and, you know, maybe sort of not So they're on the laboring edges. to get this right. Whereas I think, right, I mean, I think Gil, Gil, this could, a lot of this could be Gil and a huge fight on the yeah. court about, you know, what, the, I mean, one way to read this is that there's an opinion coming down that's going to say yes to, you know, at least some partisan gerrymandering claims going forward. Oh, yeah. And that set off like some kind of, you know, 
shockwave. No, I think that's probably right. Descriptively, that's bound to be it. So, so for Carpenter, that leaves the question of how, I'm not Carpenter. Microsoft. For, sorry, United States versus Microsoft, <laughs> the Ireland case. Uh, they're going to get rid of it probably. I think What's so. the vehicle? So the vehicle is is probably going to be um, – th- there are two possibilities. One is just to dismiss Sir Shirari as improvidently granted. This is known as a dig, dig. in dig Supreme it. Court parlance. I think more likely is a vacateur and remand. Does that mean we have to title this episode, episode 66, Can You Dig It? Can You Dig It? Um, I think – hey, uh, you should write that down. Um, <laughs> I'll remember that one. <laughs> Can you dig it? Um, so the the <laughs> I, I think the more likely is a vacator and remand, where they basically say, in light of the changed circumstances, yeah. um, we're 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 vacating the second circuit decision. We're sending this back for reconsideration in light of the passage of the intervening statute. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone would object to that. I think we could see that as early as like next week. I'm curious whether anything practically turns on the dig pathway versus the vacature and remand? Um, so maybe not, right? Because presumably the government, so the government lost in the Second Circuit. Um, and so a dig would leave intact the Second Circuit's interpretation of the pre-Cloud ah. Act, uh, yeah. uh, Stored Communications Act. But the government, of course, is now free under the Cloud Act whether in this case or in a newly filed application, to go back to the district court and seek the exact same material. Yeah, it's interesting. All so, right, but so, probably so, going to so go answer, away. But yeah. the answer, I think, is is because the government lost in the Second Circuit, yeah. I think nothing matters realistically. The government may be happier. The government says it's going to file a supplemental brief, and they may be happier with a vacateur than with a dig because at least then that wipes off a you know a loss off the books. Right, I, I can imagine that's what they'll... I mean, why not? If yeah. you have a choice to pitch for one or the other, pitch for the Indeed. removal of the loss. All right, um, speaking of sort of strange court orders, um, so so which order do you want to do the commissions in? you want to do Nishiri first or you want to do Madison? Oh, let's talk about the, the dueling declarations the dueling first. declarations. Bobby, have you ever requested satellite imagery and been fired for it? You know, it happens all the time. So, so let me just remind people where we are, right? Okay. So this is in the 9-11 case, one of the four, three and a half, four pending cases in the military commissions. Um, judge Pohl, the presiding judge, not to be confused with Judge Spath, um, right? Judge Pohl, in response to an unlawful command influence claim by some of the defendants, ordered Secretary Mattis to file a declaration explaining why uh, Hardy Rishikoff, the convening authority, and his legal advisor, Gary Brown, had been fired. Uh, those declarations were filed. We had not seen them when we sat down to record last week's episode. Um, we have now seen them, even though they're technically still under seal, because various people didn't think that right. the seal was appropriate. And, and it, I think a critical point here, if I'm correct, I think the Harvey Rishikoff, Gary Brown declaration and the Secretary Mattis declarations were contemporaneous, so mm-hmm. they're not responsive to each no, other, which no. is which is key. Uh, if we let's start maybe with Harvey and Gary's sure. declaration, which expresses a lot of uncertainty as to you know we, we don't know why we would have been fired. Um, we certainly hadn't received any forewarning this was coming. We'd been making our our periodic reports to our supervisor back at DoD OGC. Uh, DOD General Counsel's office. Um, everything, as far as we knew, was hunky dory. Um, we're very concerned. We can speculate. You know, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Um, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, just like I mean, you know, basically, I think the most important thing is no one ever suggested to us prior to the moment of termination that there was specific behavior in which we were engaged that was problematic or that would lead us to be fired. So then, layer in the secretary's declaration, which was uh, fairly pithy. We had speculated that he was going to offer just very generalized uh, grounds, you know, that there's a desire for change in personnel, maybe maybe aspersions cast about 
uh, the the management style or something. And there was that. There was sort of a general claim that uh, with respect to the convening authority, Harvey Rishkoff, a general claim about problems with his style. Yep. Um, but then the part that got everybody's attention, uh, there was a, a follow-on paragraph with a very particular complaint. What was it? Um, so it was that Harvey had requested access to particular satellite imagery of... Well, I thought he wanted he wanted a, an aerial vehicle to go overhead sorry, and right, take a picture. Right, I'm sorry. He, yeah. he was requesting, right, uh, uh, the, uh, the creation of particular, right, overhead imagery. Overhead imagery of, of the, the Guantanamo, base. of the base. Um, presumably, I guess, with an eye toward where he might construct some kind of new meeting room that would be free of the underlying you know, baggage of the prior in- interference with attorney-client communications. Right. So just to put that in context, the only real plausible story about why in the world the convenient authority would be seeking somebody to get a good current photograph from overhead of the yeah. base would be that there's something about, uh, you know, physical plant that's at issue here. And this clearly relates to this other issue, which people had been well, monitoring. And which we know Harvey had been interested in, right? Because right, in that's, where I'm, that's where I'm going. In his memorandum sort of approving but modifying, right, the conviction and sentence for General Baker's contempt in the Nishiri case, right? Harvey talks specifically about the need to construct a new facility. Right. So the underlying issue is this goes back to the the allegation of government monitoring of the defense's attorney-client communications. And there's a fact dispute about that. But one of the things that we know the convening authority had done was to raise the possibility that why don't we just moot this issue going forward by having some new facility created? Let's let's erect a building right over here, put in a trailer, whatever it's going to be, and it'll be clean from the get-go. We won't have any legacy microphones turning out to be in there, that sort of thing. Um, and so the presumption is that he, in furtherance of that project, had tried to get try to get a tasking of some kind of appropriate overhead aerial uh, photography, and that this was done in a manner, according to Secretary Mattis, that was outside of his lane, done, was done peremptorily, et cetera. So it was sort of a complaint both about the style and about the invocation of authority to have this done. Um, it's, I, my reading wasn't that this is being cited as the one and only basis factually for the removal, but it's, but the, it's the only one. Thing. Well, it's the only thing mentioned. Right. It's the one particular example. And, and, and how does it stand up to you? How does it stand? Like, does, is it credible to you? You know, uh, look, I don't really know what to make of it. I don't really have a strong opinion because it, it's it's pretty brief. I don't think it is properly read as saying this one thing happened, therefore it was recommended to me. Now, Mattis is not saying, hey, I've been monitoring this situation closely. The the, the declaration goes out of its way to yeah. say this is based on what uh, the acting general counsel has conveyed to me. I'm acting on the recommendation of people actually are monitoring the situation. So I don't know. Um, if you if if you're supposed to think that there's more to the allegation than just the tasking of, you know, uh, an aerial vehicle, well, that's one thing. If you think it's just this, that's another. But it's also not obvious to me that if it was just this, that it's somehow beyond the authority of the Secretary of Defense to, to act on that. I mean, yeah, it's a thin basis. You would think that that one thing wouldn't be enough. But it's it's not clear to me that this is the kind of employment situation where the Secretary of Defense can't make a thinly based decision. No, now, that's right. The, the, none of that means that it wasn't actually something else. Well, Maybe there really was something else. And, Maybe that'll come out. And the but. real legal question, of course, is whether there's enough to support the notion that there might have been unlawful command influence. And, and right now, there's, clear, in my opinion, clearly not. No, right I agree now. with that. The question is whether the poll is going to find the the provided explanation sufficient, right. right, to resolve that issue conclusively. And so the the issue here to to drill down to it is: Will the judge either? require further declarations, 
or testimony. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I think the if, if this were an Article Three court, I mean, this would never have happened. But if this were an if you had the same thing in Article Three court, I think there's no question yeah, that an the judge's hearing. instinct would be to have an evidentiary hearing. Right. Now, it's interesting, too, that you don't necessarily need or want Mattis for that hearing no, no. because he makes clear in his declaration. He was acting he, on someone's recommendation. No, he, this is no surprise here. The Secretary of Defense is not personally involved in figuring out what to do here. This is pr- properly uh, a decision that it at most was at the level of the acting general counsel, Bill Castle, probably somebody working under him. But at the very least, They right? might need to dig into that right. and then get somebody answering questions, providing their own declarations, exactly. or doing cross-examination. Exactly. So, so, so all this to say, I don't think this is the end of this. Agreed. Um, and speaking of not the end of, so then on Thursday, right, we got this bizarre, I, I bizarre, right, order from the CMCR and Alan Ashiri. Right. Um, Right, so just to remind right, so Al Nashiri is the Spath case where Judge Spath, you know, threw up his hands, abated the proceedings, and said, Someone's got to fix this for me. Um, and the government took an appeal that, Bobby, as we've discussed, the CMCR may or may not have jurisdiction over under Section 950D. So on Thursday, the CMCR, uh, Judges Burton, Silliman, and Pollard, footnote Burton, who is still in the Army. And therefore, is holding two oh, this offices is, at this once. This is your Dalmazi, uh, right? So, issue. so a, a CMCR panel that may itself be improperly constituted. Wink, yeah, wink. We'll, we'll see. Um, whatever. Um, right? Issued this very strange order where, after recounting the facts, um, they order four things. So, here are the four things they order. One, Judge Spath is directed to answer the following question. Assuming Commander Miser, this is Brian Miser, the former um, uh, counsel in the military commissions who's now in the Air Force, a civilian in the Air Force Legal Operations Agency, um, who basically is one of the only people who's a learned counsel who could theoretically be dragooned back onto the case, right? Because the Secretary of the Navy could try to involuntarily recall him. Mm-hmm. All right. If, if uh, assuming Commander Miser or another learned counsel is detailed to represent Al Nashiri and files a notice of appearance, will the commission resume the proceedings before it without being ordered to do so by this court? So yeah. the first question is like, hey, Spath, is this just about the fact that you don't have a learned counsel right now? And Spath says, I respond in the negative. <laughs> so we get this. Can you, uh, can you elaborate major. on that? Yeah, yeah. So, so yesterday, right? Spath filed his response yesterday. It, it's really funny to see the court sort of respond. It's like an exchange of litigation documents, but it's from the CMCR in between uh, them and the military commission's judge. So Spath says, "You I say res- it's funny. I say it's completely bizarre and, un- and unusual." I, I see very little distinction between those two characterizations. Uh, respond in the negative for the following reasons, and so he says, "Look, no, I'm still." Considering this case in, in indefinite abatement, even if we had progress on the, on the miser detail. For but the why? Right. The appointment of miser or any other learning counsel, and I'm going to paraphrase, read through this thing. Uh, that was one solution contemplated to mitigate what we determined was uh, basically the abandoning of the client by the defense team. But it doesn't address the, what he views as, quote, an existential threat to his Spath's ability to bring the case to trial. That is to say, the judge's ability to run the run the pr- prosecution. Oh, an existential threat. That must be the ethics issue that is tying up this whole case, right? So he says no. the existential threat to his ability involves the assertion by the chief defense counsel, Judge Baker. Colonel, uh, General Baker. General Baker. Yeah, what did I say? Judge Baker? Uh, General Baker. Um, uh, <laughs> Spath would say, exactly. He's acting like he's the judge, right? He says... Uh, Baker has claimed, quote, unilateral and unreviewable, close quote, authority to excuse any defense counsel after appearance before the commission. 
um, which then calls into question the commission's ability to issue, quote, binding orders and the concomitant duty of those subject to said orders and their supervisors to obey them. I think that's an oblique reference to uh, orders to compel people to appear and, and including orders to seize those people and attach them. I agree, but I, I, I want to flag what Spath is saying here. Wait, 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 I wanna, oh. let, me, let me finish He's this. He's not done? This, the situation's analogous, and I'm reading directly from his, oh, his response. The situation's analogous to those in which appellate courts have declined to moot review of expired short-term agency orders, blah, blah, blah. In short, he's saying, Spath is saying, look, that's great. We have a learned counsel, but then some other issue arises, or maybe it's the same issue arises again. And once again, the defense says, we'll be the final judge of whether any of these attorneys can be released from the representation and you can't do anything about it. And that's been the fundamental issue from Spath's perspective all along, that he can't, he is asserting that he gets the last word. It's part of the seven layer dip of issues. The first layer is the one you mentioned a moment ago, which is, was there or was there not government monitoring of def- defense communications with their client? Or I, I would frame it slightly differently. Was there or was there not sufficient reason for defense counsel to be worried that the government was monitoring. Sure, yeah, I'll, that's fine. Friendly amendment. And so so above that is the question of, all right, well, who's the ultimate fact finder on that question? Is, is it the chief defense counsel who can authorize the defense team to leave the case? Or once they've entered appearances, do, does that have to run through Judge Spath? And Judge Spath is saying, that remains my issue. So my answer to the CMCR is, no, I don't care if, you've, if we get a new learned counsel, that's great, but I still have a huge cloud over my authority in this case. Okay, so I want to say that is such a ridiculous tantrum by Judge Spath to throw. Tantrum? Yes. Really? Yes, because the actual issue in this case is not who has the final say over excusing defense counsel. The actual issue is whether defense counsel were were correct, right, in resigning from the case, right? And so, listen, I understand if Spath thinks that the there are lawyers defying his authority, but like the actual issue that has to be resolved before these lawyers can in good conscience and consistent with their own ethical obligations work on this case is resolution of the underlying ethical dispute. But isn't that what Spath is saying? That he no. that he gets to be the decision maker on that issue. But and and you know whether not and not ju- ju- uh, judge General Baker. But why shouldn't the CMC? You know, we're all dressed up, right? Why we're in the CMCR? Why not say, "Hey, CMCR, it would help if you would resolve the first layer and not just the second." But isn't, layer. isn't that the thrust of what? No. Isn't that the consequence of Spath is saying, "Yeah, this is still in indefinite abatement because I have this concern." And you guys, therefore, need to deal with it. You guys need to deal with the question of whether my decision is final, right? Um, as opposed to whether my decision was correct. If Those they, are different things. If they decide his decision was final, which decision are we talking Sorry, about okay. now? So Spath's original decision reject right? So so this all started with a ruling from Spath that there was not, in fact, interference with the attorney-client relationship, right? Right. That is the ruling that set this whole thing off. And that's what they should be all focused correct. on. Correct. We totally agree on that. Okay. Like, let's just, as we've said from the beginning of this saga, just resolve that. So Get why, it as right. far so along if as I'm Spath and the CMCR is saying, Dear Judge Spath, what do we have to resolve for this case to proceed? I'm saying you got to resolve the, you know, fine, also resolve who has the decision. That's not the question he's answering here. The question he's answering here is if we appoint Commander Miser or another uh, learning counsel, will you get going again? And his answer is no, because right now I don't have the last word on the issue you're saying that needs to get resolved. So keep it there at the CMCR and resolve all the issues. I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah, well, that's what they should construe him to be saying. Fair, okay. If that, and then we're both happy. And then we're both happy. Okay, if they if they <laughs> construe Spath's answer as you got to resolve both the underlying question of whether they had a right to step off the case and my authority to 
correctly or incorrectly resolve that question, then I'm with you. Yeah, I think that's that, not what he said. Well, I, I but it's also not what they asked here. The question that's framed is just know. about the miser question. No, no, no. If the, we're gonna if we're gonna read their question broadly, we gotta read his answer broadly. So the, I read their question as saying, if we if we find you a learned counsel, will you start it? Will you resume? Right. And Spath is saying no, because you haven't resolved my authority. Right. Right. And my response is that even if you so even if they resolve his authority, there's still the underlying question of whether he was right. Right, like that's that's where I get frustrated. Well, I, and again, I think that you and I both want the CMCR, and then beyond that, the DC right. Circuit, be and perhaps beyond that, to go ahead and just get on this issue and resolve right. it. Um, All right. So, so just, the, just to yeah. kind of the last thing I want to say about this is that yeah. he, expl- I didn't read it, but he explicitly Spath. invokes Spath invokes the capable of repetition evading review issue, which is clearly an issue that looms here. Yeah. And you're 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 saying it's a tantrum. I think it's reasonable for him to feel like, look, I don't have any control. Miser shows up one week later. We're going to be back in the soup again. So why? Again, why? I, but why are we going to be back in the soup again? Not for the because, same underlying issue, right? Not because General Baker is claiming the authority to allow his lawyers to resign, but because the lawyers believe they. Have have a meritorious reason to resign. Those things can't be distinguished here. They're the same issue. I, I disagree. Well, all right. <laughs> so we disagree, but we agree that the court should take, get to the merits, eat the Correct. whole. They need to eat all seven layers. I agree. All right. So speaking of seven layers, we just talked about the first question in the bizarre order. The second question, appellant and this is back to the CMCR's order on Thursday. Appellant and appellee, so the government and the jury, are directed to address the following specified questions. Does this court have jurisdiction? So, interesting how that's the second question and not the first question. Well, Does this court have jurisdiction under the All Writs Act to hear and decide the government's appeal? Assuming that there is All Writs Act jurisdiction, what issues and or questions are appropriate and necessary to resolve the government's appeal? Now, we we should make clear the two different authorities that could be the basis for their jurisdiction, All Writs Act only being one of them and not the one we'd focused on. Right. So, um, the appeal was actually filed under Section 950D, 10 U.S.C. 950D, which is the statute, part of the Military Commissions Act that allows for interlocutory appeals by the government of orders that terminate proceedings in the trial court. Um, I take this question to be suggesting some skepticism on the part of the CMCR, that termination, that abatement in this context counts as termination. Um, because the question is saying, hey, let's assume we don't have direct jurisdiction under 950D. Can we still provide relief right. through a writ of mandamus under the All Writs Act? So an alternative theory is they're perfectly fine with the abatement theory as termination. For as several people pointed out to us, that's not a that's not an unprecedented idea from the, the court martial context, apparently. Um, but maybe the court can grab more issues more plausibly if it proceeds at least partially under, if not entirely under, the All Writs Act, as opposed to the scope of what's mm. really before it if it's 950D only. So I, I actually, uh, if, at the risk of disagreeing with you again, right? I mean, so if it's a 950D appeal, the issues are de novo, right? If it's a mandamus appeal, we've talked before about just how high the bar is for mandamus relief under the DC Circuit's, I assume, binding case law here. And so it may be that they could cover more terrain through mandamus, but the bar for relief would be so high, right? That I feel like from the government's perspective, they would much rather litigate whatever they can litigate through 950D than through mandamus. So they probably, I'm, I'm willing to bet they're not actually thinking that precisely yeah. about it all, yeah, but right. I also imagine what they're thinking is insofar as there's a scope question. Let's figure it out. Let Well, that they might be thinking, let's be able to invoke both the 950D authority, which as you say, would be de novo, right. but then let's also throw in the All Writs Act to explain why we're going to reach any other issues where otherwise you might wonder why we're reaching them. All right. Question three. While we're, you know, now, now that we've raised an issue as to our jurisdiction, let's keep ordering people to do stuff. 
Appellant, this is the government, shall file with the court every Wednesday beginning on March 28th. That's tomorrow. Um, happy birthday, older sister Liz. Um, status reports <laughs> on the progress in detailing new learned counsel, including Commander Miser, to represent al-Nashiri. Status reports regarding whether the U.S. intends to construct or designate a separate facility at Guantanamo where attorney-client meetings can be held as previously recommended by the convening authority. Ooh, awkward. Um, and if so, what progress is being made to construct or designate such a facility? Hey, at least they didn't order um, any aerial photography. That would have been awkward. <laughs> and then fourth, the chief defense counsel slash acting chief defense counsel and deputy chief defense counsel will answer the following question. Will they expeditiously seek and appoint learned counsel for al-Nashiri? If so, what action have they taken to do so? So the CMCR is like, hey, everybody. We've got some questions. So, you know, you're, you're kind of giving them a hard time for, for raising the jurisdiction in the middle of it, but yes. while also doing this other stuff. But aren't you glad that they're not doing it piecemeal? Because otherwise, it would just be the jurisdiction quest question, some briefing, they'll resolve that, and then they start engaging on these deals. Isn't it good that they're being a bit more aggressive? So, I'm a formalist, okay? Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I thought above all, you're a man who's frustrated with the pace of the military commissions. I am frustrated with the pace of the military commissions. But, like, you know, the CMCR, which, let's just be clear, for the last, you know, 10 years has been very skeptical, Bobby, of its own jurisdiction, right? Has done a whole lot of things yeah. I disagree with based upon narrow constructions of its jurisdictional so authority. So it irks you to see... Uh... All of a sudden, it's the government <laughs> appeal, and like, oh, look at all these things we can do. Ah, uh, the context is key. Um, or hypocrisy is key. Ouch! I'm, Ouch. I'm, just, I'm, I'm just throwing, I'm throwing darts today. <laughs> you are, man. <laughs> um, so all this is to say, like, you know, broadly, right, big picture, I actually think the CMCR is doing the right thing. Um, uh, it's I a, know it pains you to say it. I can see it in your eyes. Well, no, no, I just think it's irrelevant. Right? Because I think you and I are both of the view that this isn't going to be settled until it gets to the D.C. Oh, circuit. I completely agree. No, the, the existence, it's the judicial uh, equivalent of, of you know, multiple layers of bureaucracy in an agency. Just like, uh, can we just have a flatter structure here? Well, that would be nice. Um, okay, so Milcom's never disappointing. Let's let's move on to... Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, there's other stuff to talk about? Other stuff. Which should we go to next? Uh, the Austin Bomber. Yeah, let's... Uh, the reason we want to talk about this again is that a number of folks have been talking in the national media and locally and then sometimes directly to us about the labeling question. Why isn't there more clear labeling? Sometimes this is phrased as, why isn't there a charge of terrorism? Sometimes, and, and more smartly, it's phrased as, why isn't there just you know discussion through the lens of terrorism here? And, and usually right. this is accompanied by a pointing out that, look, it's this white male defendant. Um, he's, he's not a Muslim or what have you. So therefore, that might explain why the word terrorism is not being used. What do you think? I mean, I think... I I think there are two different things going on here, and I think that they overlap and intercept, but that they're meaningfully distinct. I think there's an instant on the part of lots of folks in our society, um, and including, but not limited to, the President of the United States, to point to violent attacks by immigrants of particular ethnic or religious backgrounds and call them terrorism, and to point to violent attacks by white Americans and call it violence. Right. And so I don't think, Bobby, we need to look at Austin as you know, like, how about the Las Vegas shooting? Right. Contrast the Las Vegas shooting with Saipov well, and the bombing and the, and the, you, the truck incident in New York. I, I'm asking this generally. I don't yeah. have a good, strong recollection with Vegas. Were, were people not using the word terrorism? Was that it was a fight? Right. I mean, there was it was right. The there were plenty of folks on the scene, commentators, I think some local officials calling it an act of terrorism. But the federal government just said, you know, tragedy, violence, blah, blah, blah. Never called it terrorism. Is that right? Yeah. So. 
Um, legally, I mean, let's we're we're lawyers, so yeah. let's talk about the yeah. Law. Let's start with the legal layer because in the, in the setup earlier, I talked about the distinction between yep. the legal categories so, and, so, the, and the public debate categories. So federal law, at least definitionally, does define both international terrorism and domestic terrorism. They're both defined in 18 U.S.C. section 2331. International terrorism is 2331 sub one. Domestic terrorism is 2331 sub-5. And so federal law does define both terms. But for various reasons, and we've talked about some of them before, federal law only creates a specific criminal offense for the former. That is, acts of international terrorism. Acts of domestic terrorism as such are not federal crimes, even if the act may be chargeable under lots of other federal offenses, using a weapon of mass destruction, attacking government property, etc. Right. The uh, definition plays in actually rather unclear role, like why is that there? I, I think it comes into play, if I'm not mistaken, in the sentencing context, yep. where it really actually matters quite a bit, right. but it's not a standalone crime. And most states are the same way. I believe this is true about the Texas Penal Code. We have a statute here that uh, criminalizes making terroristic threats, but we do not have, to the best of my knowledge, a standalone crime of terrorism, domestic or otherwise. Um, this is very common, and it's important to underscore again, it's not that these actions aren't criminal, they're, they are they are acts of murder. They're acts of battery. They're acts of arson. They're they're an endless series of criminal acts. Um, but it's rather like the hate crimes category, where those are existing crimes too. And then sometimes you decide, for various reasons, you're going to attach a further layer. Maybe it's because the penalties will be enhanced. Maybe it's because you think there's value as a matter of public policy to label a particular type of murder or violent crime and give it the extra pejorative effect of attaching, in one case, the hate crime label, and in another case, the terrorism label. And I think the average person out there who's not a lawyer just assumes that terrorism must be a crime. Right. I mean, that, that's a perfectly reasonable assumption, and it's disconcerting to people to, to learn that, no, there's not going to be a terrorism charge, and and they don't always understand that, well, it's because there there is no terrorism charge in right. most cases. No, no. So, so, and then I think the hard question is, should there be, right? I mean, so, so. So Mike McCall, ch- uh, former uh, chairman, but but Representative McCall, whose district reaches into Austin, goes all <laughs> along the, the path between Houston and Austin. Uh, has raised the possibility that maybe it's time, just as we have hate crimes, maybe there should be a federal charge of terrorism. And I think that's responsive to this layperson sense that, wait a minute, that's an especially uh, egregious category. Shouldn't that be identified as such in the criminal code? And I think so. So I think part of the resistance, so this all dates to 1996, right? I mean, most of the sort of terrorism stuff in the federal code has its origins in the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. I think at the time, Bobby, there was some trepidation, especially in light of the recent, the then recent Supreme Court decision in Lopez um, about whether Congress even had the enumerated constitutional power to define domestic terrorism as a federal offense if it yeah. didn't have some other federal element crossing state lines, right. attacking federal property, using weapon mass destruction. I actually think that that analysis may have been overtaken by events, right? That after 9-11, I think courts are not going to have too much trouble if they properly define domestic terrorism offense. That's interesting. So the first layer, and we're, we're going to construct a multi-layer dip again here. Oh, God. There's a federalism layer about whether yeah. the federal government should do it. But imagine that McCall and others were saying, look, I think the Texas state of Texas do should yeah. do it, and every state ought to yeah. consider doing it. You said strip that, the federalism issue away. Um, is there any utility to it? I think that one's views on that, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, look, we've, we've got general purpose violent crimes, and then you can have an Enhancements and sentencing, you can bring up terrorism as, as a reason to enhance. Um, that seems reasonable, but I also think it's reasonable, much as it's reasonable to think that hate crime is especially egregious. Well, so too, perhaps, uh, terrorism, not unrelated, by the way, in many instances. So that's the legal category. There's 
whether there should be or not, there, there isn't a standalone charge mm-hmm. to bring to bear. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't address whether or not in talking about it, public officials and commentators should be using the label terrorism. Um, I think we both would agree that part of what goes on is that most people, when they think of terrorism, are going to think about it through the lens originally of al-Qaeda, then from the Islamic State. And that colors their perceptions about what counts as terrorism and tends to lead people who've not been thinking it through, might lead them to think of it as a shorthand word for a particular organized armed right. group that engages or, or a group of organized armed groups that engage in terrorism. And and that's a, that's a faulty assumption because it excludes everyone else who also might engage in illegal violence to spread terror or to influence events. In, in the way that one associates with the lay understanding of what terrorism means. Right, but the federal definition of international terrorism does not have a group-based requirement at all, right? Like you can have it could a, be an individual, sure. Yeah. But we'll, let's set aside the organizations know, versus individuals and focus on whether or not... Uh, I, I think the whole idea that there's no agreement on the definition of terrorism is is kind of overblown. That's true as a lawmaking matter, the but, there's, but there's reasons why people won't agree on this in, in diplomacy and others. In terms of just how people in America just talk yeah. about terrorism, I think to say illegal violence that's intended to cause terror in a community or to influence government policy, uh, at least that much, that would count as terrorism for most people. I bet you could find very little disagreement on the street with that definition. So so I don't mean to put you on the spot. So so a school shooting, terrorism? Well, it depends, right? On I just I just offered I a, there's an act and a mens rea. And so and so Well, let, let me answer your question. Yeah. So there's a mens rea element that the act is intended to cause terror, spread fear in the population. A school su- shooting certainly will do that, then you get interesting questions of intent. If it's a if it's a person who's completely lost their mind and has no idea what they're doing, right. you might have trouble with the intent element, even though it's actually causing the fear. Right. Um, I feel like my knowledge of what goes on with a lot of these shooters and these horrific incidents is that they are, in fact, trying to cause and spread fear. Um, the Las Vegas shooter, we don't know what his actual motives were, but it's very easy or compelling to me, at least, to infer from the circumstances right. he was trying to spread fear. Whereas the, the shooting the, in Maryland last week, right? Actually, I think the the suggestion from the reports I've read is that it was actually a personal, like, a, you know, the, there was a specific target. This is the, he, he killed his ex-girlfriend yeah. and killed himself? Right. So that's, that to me, right, although it may right. have It's spreading effect. fear, but the, the mental state's not there. And so apply all this to the Austin bomber. Um, part of what's going on here is we, there is a mystery, not unlike the Vegas bomber, where there's not as much clarity as we would certainly like as to exactly what was going on. There apparently is this recorded message where he talks about his his motivations. Um, our acting police chief, uh, uh, Chief Manley, has uh, conveyed some of the sense of it. And what he basically said was he didn't invoke any uh, you know sort of public policy type motives, but he did talk a lot about his own personal frustrations and angers and his life experiences. And that muddies the water a bit. That said, the nature of what he did, this sort of systematic campaign of sending out the, these mail right. bombs, uh, it, for me, I think it's a fair inference, unless in, it's rebuttable perhaps, but it's a fair inference that he was trying to cause terror around the city of Austin. Now, when it first began, the first two bombs uh, targeted seemed to target the African-American community. They, In each case, hitting members of prominent uh, East Austin African-American families. Um, but then later on, the pattern shifts. There's the tripwire bomb, which yep. is in a, a, a 
predominantly white neighborhood in southwest Austin. And then the last bomb that was intercepted apparently was targeting a, a white woman. So I'm not sure that over time it turned out that the, the, the assumption that it was racially motivated uh, held up. In fact, it seems not to have held up. We don't know much more, right? Um, there's been a lot of speculation based on his upbringing that therefore his motives were, were this or that, and therefore it was that sort of terrorism. Um, maybe so. I think we need more information. But I guess what I told one reporter was that when you have bombings uh, through mailed packages to various parts of town, seemingly at random, uh, it's I think a fair assumption that the perpetrator is trying to cause widespread uh, panic and fear. And even if that person is not asking the city of Austin, the state of Texas, or the government of the United States to undertake some policy and is merely trying to cause fear, to me, that's enough. So, so if you're, I mean, there's, you know, we can't, we can't, and we shouldn't tell people what words to use to describe things, right? Sure. If you're a reporter, right? What, what, what do you think is a responsible best practices when it comes to how you're describing these events? You know, it's some, something like this where I yeah. think that the, the fact pattern on its face looks like yeah. something intended to cause fear. I think it's fair, fair to call it an apparent act or pattern or a series of acts of terrorism. Right. But saying apparent provides as much uh, sort of nuance as is really needed but, in this but, context. I mean, it's worth, and I think it's worth, it's worth reminding, you know, for especially our non-lawyer audience, right, just how much intent and mens rea really matters here. I mean, so contrast, for example you know, a shooting that kills six people with the Florida bridge collapse, right? Horrible, horrific tragedy could very well lead to criminal charges. I think there's already some discussion about maybe yeah. criminally negligent homicide, but of course no intent, right? You know, yeah. where you have a mass loss of life based on perhaps criminal negligence, right? But no state of mind designed either yeah. to inflict that harm or to do so for these preordained purposes. Well, to push it into a harder and more relevant comparison. Um, <laughs> thank you for, no, thank you for that right. subtle shot. <laughs> my irrelevant comparison. I didn't, I didn't mean to quite like that. I just tried to make the hypo even even harder. Yeah. It's really what I meant. Yeah. Um, when the first bombing occurred, there was no telling, right, whether a whether this was sort of a targeted personal yep. grudge, a, right. a targeted murder just happened to be carried out by a bomb. Right. Like the, the Unabomber. It, there's no question that, the, well, the Unabomber is an interesting example here, but the, the bomb as the means, as opposed to a shooting or, or something like that, definitely triggers assumptions about, well, terrorism, it's a bomb. Obviously, you can commit a murder. It could be a, it could be organized crime. It could be killing a rival. It could be any number of things, and the bomb doesn't make it terrorism. It's when it happened the second time, and there begins to be the sense that oh, wait a minute, maybe this isn't specific to those people. If this is random, then you're talking about terrorism as a very plausible theory of what's going on, even if you can't charge it as such. All right, uh, have we said all there is to say about? Um, I think we've said enough. Um, so the uh, the other thing I was going to um, I, I was going to propose on the fly here because we are already forty six minutes in. Yeah. Maybe Why don't we push Libya to yeah, next week? I agree. It's the Libyans. It's the, <laughs> the Libyans can wait. <laughs> nice. Um, Back to the future. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but speaking of of lightning, right? Um, lightning round. All right. Lightning round. Go. John Bolton. Go. John Bolton. Um, so. On the legal side of the John Bolton issue, the two things to point out. Um, one, it's well known he's a skeptic of international law. Uh, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> he's a skeptic of international law. He has got a uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from not that long ago laying out the case for the legality under the UN Charter of preemptive use of force in the context of WMD. So this is sort of a, a retread of 2002, 2003 era arguments about how 
uh, the idea of an imminent threat that you can respond to in accordance with sort of the Caroline doctrine of responding to in an anticipatory way to a uh, imminent and certain threat, that that window can be stretched where the threat is WMD, especially nuclear. Um, we've seen this argument before. We're all familiar with the pros and cons of the argument. Um, he's, no surprise, a strong advocate of the view that at least in the WMD context, if not more broadly, you can stretch that window really broadly. So he thinks it's perfectly perfectly legal to strike the North Koreans, apparently. Uh, the, the sort of bloody nose preemptive strike. Right. And, and so the, and the key thing here is that in the ordinary context, you don't necessarily think of the National Security Advisor personally as having a strong legal view in the legalities insofar as the White House is willing to uh, focus on the legalities, that's going to be fought out in the interagency lawyer process amongst the most relevant uh, lawyers group members, and the uh, National Security Council legal advisor would be playing a key role. Here, it's important to underscore, yeah, there's still a National Security Council legal advisor, there's still a DOD general counsel, there's still White House counsel, there's still LLC, but the National Security uh, Advisor himself is a lawyer with really strong views, and he's got very very substantial views. It's not something he doesn't know much about. He knows a lot about this. Uh, he has edgy views on <laughs> edgy. these things. And, like he's, that. and he's going to influence uh, the legal analysis as a result in a way that the National Security Advisor personally doesn't normally do. So I, I have two. Rea- I have three reactions. First, right, you said last week, and I think this is yet further evidence, of the president increasingly surrounding himself with people who are you know, enablers, enablers, yeah. as opposed to veto gates. Yeah. Um, to the point where now it really looks like Mattis may be the the last grown up in the room. Um, I, I'll put in a, I'll put in a pitch for Pompeo. We'll see. Yeah. Right. T- TBD. Um, second point. You know, I am I am not. One of the things that alarms me about this is there were reports I think over the weekend that Bolton is already looking into firing. Um, a whole bunch of what he calls Obama holdovers, who are actually career NSC staffers. Yeah, that, that's a really unfortunate characterization. People who are in no way political appointees. They're just hired during they're, a well, Democratic They're, they're detailed. Right. They're detailed from the intelligence community or the military to the NSC, and they happen to begin their detail during the Obama time. Fluky. Into character, yeah, it's it's fine to replace them if you have a particular policy disagreement. But it's, just but to, just a knee jerk. If you started here during the Obama years, you are not trustworthy per se. Well, what I particularly don't like, it, and, and again, it's fine if there's a policy disagreement. Yeah. But going public to characterize these uh, career personnel as if they were politi- partisan political appointees, I think is is quite unfair and misleading. Yeah, um, no, and corrosive. And then the third point, and I think this is this perhaps maybe where, where you and I may differ differ a little bit. Um, so there were some sort of reverberations in the conservative community over the weekend. Yes, finally, a hawk, right, in the White House, right? Um, finally, we're going to get our, our hawkish national security advisor. Um, I don't know what world these folks have been living in for the last, oh, I don't know, 37 years, right? We've had a whole bunch of hawks in the White House lately, like... I, I, I guess I just I, I, I am not a I am I am a, a fairly sort of mild hawkish type person. Like I am not you know, I'm not anti war in every sense. But where are the doves in the White House in the last thirty seven years? Have, I, I, have like, I missed them? I think it's pretty clear that that reaction was a lot best understood along the lines of the divide between those who are willing to aggressively endorse the use of military force and those who take a more cautious view of things, more of a rules bound international order thing. Which doesn't McMaster, make them not hawks. McMaster was. No, 
my whole point is that it's not about hawks versus doves. It's about the what's sometimes characterized in those quarters as globalist or you know liberal international order proponents, which McMaster was perceived as being, and those who are much more willing to upset the apple cart. Okay, so I want to say two things. First, I hate the term globalist because it is often used as a synonym for Jews. Um, ah, right? yeah. um, probably by some, probably in some cases by some of the same folks. Indeed. Um, so so you know, I, I would love to see us relegate globalist to the dustbin Dust of history. terminological yeah. history. Well, let's, um, be, let's just so it's really clear. Yeah. I was not using the word. No, 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 bubbles. no. Oh, I'm oh, passing oh, along what oh, the, the, the verbiage of that. Let, let no one think that that was a shot at Bobby. That's a shot at people Good. using the term. Okay. Um, and, and knowing what they're doing when they're using it. Right. Okay. Dog whistling when they're using right, it. Right, right. Um, second, and I think more sort of structurally, um, right, it's not about hawks versus doves. It's about people who think that there are rules that constrain the use of force and people who don't. No, it's exactly it's exactly along these lines. And and again, the, the idea that Trump had become surrounded by Tillerson, Mattis, McMaster, others who were often characterized as the adults in the room, I think he used that phrase earlier, um, was perceived as binding the president, keeping him from being as aggressive as he would like to be, all in service of this rules-bound international order. And I think the the tumult or the, the, the resonance on in some quarters you were referring to a moment ago, was a sort of a celebration that Bolton's absolutely not that guy. Bolton's going to be much more aggressive and, and enabling of Trump Unbound. Um, and that's my concern. All right. Um, quick more lightning round stuff. So we talked briefly, 60 Russians getting kicked out, Seattle consulate closed. These are, of course, mostly pro forma moves. The, the problem with them is, of course, the, the Russians can, and in some cases will, just reciprocating kind. So everybody loses a little bit of capacity. Everybody loses some amount of, there's some disruption to human collection for everybody. None of it has really serious sting in the way that properly targeted economic sanctions would. That's, right. That's the thing. We've talked about this before. The, the thing to continue to watch is the UK, the United States, the EU, and everyone else will be serious when there are new sanctions and that they're well-targeted to to hit where it hurts amongst oligarchs. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, that's been talked about, but hasn't actually happened yet with the UK. Indeed. It certainly hasn't happened with us. All right. Guccifer 2.0. Turns out he's a Russian agent. You're shocked. That's that, I feel like the only thing that surprises me is anyone's talking about that like it's a surprise. I mean, it was super well established okay. in my mind. But so can we can we stop with the whole? We're not sure if it was Russia or some four hundred foot or some four hundred pound guy on a couch. No one who would say that cares, right? About this latest revelation. Okay. No one who because would say it's that, not okay. a fact based uh, perspective. Good. All right, then we're done with that. Um, <laughs> the Iran hacking indictment. Anything strike you? So, so this was an indictment. Uh, uh, Rod Rosenstein had a press conference. I think it was Friday morning. Yeah, you know. So I view that actually. There was a lot of speculation. Like, what's this going to be? Because <laughs> you know the 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 DAG is there. The DAG Rosenstein. I. I think this was uh, a significant indictment, yes, very much, but not anything out of the ordinary course or in an ordinary year at the DOJ. This would just be, you know, a major indictment, but not especially surprising. We've had other indictments of Iranians before yep. in relation, I think, to the attack on the banks. So this is opening up a, a new field of exposure or public naming and shaming of people who probably won't ever be in custody. So yeah, this yeah. is mainly name and shame. Like the North Koreans. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that, I think that stuff's important um, up to a point. 
It's and, good to be and, applauded, but nothing terribly exciting follows from it. No, although I do think, you know, if, if it's possible to strip away the Mueller investigation, right, it's nice to see DOJ continuing to push this front aggressively Yeah, as yeah, well. no, I th- in fact, I think you want to give credit to National Security Division and to CSIPS, the Computer Crimes and Intellectual Property Section. Um, whatever else is going on around the building, um, they've been continuing to push forward. You know, they, they only have so many tools available to right, them. Right. Indicting is an important one. Yep. It's not the end of the, it's not the solution to the larger problem, no, no, but, it's, but it's, it's an important step. It's more than nothing. Yeah. All right. Uh, Hipsy released its no collusion report. I say we don't even discuss. Next. Uh, you want to talk about DOJ counterterrorism indictments? Oh, I was just going to point out because we did it a while back. Uh, there are these almost weekly developments that go on in, in run-of-the-mill seeming uh, DOJ cases that if they were happening at the military commissions, we'd all be obsessing over the details. So I'm just going to you know mention a few things. By from, we all, you mean you and me. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, our, and, and the eight listeners. Um, actually, you know, we, we say listeners a lot. Um, people sometimes ask, you know, what are the numbers? You know, right now we're, we're averaging somewhere between six and 8,000 uh, downloads. Downloads. That's downloads, not listeners. Not listeners. Downloads. Hi, uh, Grandma. Exactly. <laughs> Eight listeners, thousands of people who are Listener. Just zombie downloading. All right, so here's some quick just rundowns of some recent cases. Out of the District of Arizona, March 17th, a jury conviction of a Syrian citizen involved in IED attacks on U.S. soldiers in Iraq. So this is a combat zone crime situation. That's a bit of a rarity. What's going on here? Um, I believe, though I'm not certain, that um, the way this guy ended up in our custody might have been by way of extradition after capture in Europe. I could be wrong about that one, but I think that explains why you have this sort of seemingly non-controversial, non-controversial resort resort to uh, domestic civilian criminal prosecution. But the key point, of course, is, yeah, jury conviction. That guy's never going to be free. Um, who knows? Maybe. I don't know if they're pursuing the death penalty or not. Um, United States uh, versus Fatuhi, Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, this is March 21st. Uh, there's some pending charges. They've added international, sorry, transnational terrorism charges in this case involving an attack on um, um, an airport security a police officer in Flint, Michigan. Um, so that case is sort of percolating along. How about United States versus Hendricks in Ohio, March 20th? Jury conviction, a material support case involving a guy from Charlotte, North Carolina, in Akron, Ohio, convicted of uh, attempting and conspiring to provide material support to the Islamic State. Um, One more, United States versus Solano, Southern District of Florida, March 15th, guilty plea, Islamic State, material support case. It's a Honduran citizen residing in Miami in that instance. Oh, one more. Uh, United States versus Lepsky, New Jersey, March 13th. Guilty plea, Islamic State-related case. This is a guy who was planning to use a pressure cooker bomb in New York. We all remember this story. Mm-hmm. Um, Gregory Lepsky, 20 years old, pled guilty. So, you know, another day at the office for DOJ, racking up convictions and guilty pleas in terrorism cases and terrorism support cases. Okay, that's uh, it's all almo- I to It's say about almost that. like, you know, the federal courts are perfectly capable to handle all this stuff. You'd think. All right. Um, so I think the last thing on the lightning round is, is President Trump's legal troubles <laughs> with lawyers. Um, <laughs> no, no. All the lawyers want to work for him. All the lawyers. Well, I mean, don't you know, because all they want is fame and money. That's it. That's what he's, I mean, Bobby, you and I are lawyers, right? Haven't, isn't I, do all- think, I do think it's, an, a, you know, yet another remarkable sort of moment of psychological revelation to say, like, it's all about fame and money. That's all that matters. Well, no. 
Not so much. Um, so some, some people care about and believe in things other than fame and money, Mr. President. Well, and it is it is telling that they're having trouble finding people that want to take on this particular representation. I have such a hard time believing that principal DC lawyers would have concerns about representing a client who, one, has such a casual relationship with the truth, two, doesn't listen to anyone around him, see, for example, do not congratulate Putin, <laughs> right? And three is under serious federal and congressional investigation. The problem, that last thing is what creates the opportunity for the fame and the fortune. The second thing, <laughs> that, that's a common... In fame and in fortune. Yeah. The first thing is the one that's causing the problem here. I think that one of the many... Look, I think the larger issue is it's, it's pretty obvious that you're going to be uh, probably not advanced in your career by by having had this particular role. So it's not attractive, no matter what he says, it's obviously not attractive, just in general. It's a matter of, hey, what's on your client list? Oh, I took on this this very disastrous situation. The more acute issue, which arguably some are saying may have led him to lose some of his current lawyers, is this concern that he may at some point insist on actually talking under oath to somebody at, or be willing to do that and will perjure himself. And that is really remarkable that you have some reason to think, and I think it's perfectly, ob perfectly obvious to us as observers that you, you do have some reason to think that if he gets in that situation, there probably will be things your client will say that you know are not truthful. And just, just to sort of uh, um, give us a sense of where we are, at the moment there are more lawyers representing Trump uh, when it comes to efforts to sue and or silence women claiming that he harassed or assaulted them than there are lawyers representing him in the special counsel investigation. Ouch. Well, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Res ipsa loquitur, All right, friend. so uh, pivot quick, to frivolity. Brief. Um, um, fantasy sports. So you wanted, Bobby, our, our listeners may not know that Bobby for years, and I mean years, even before I joined this August faculty. Oh, trying to get a has fantasy been baseball get a team fantasy going Fantasy baseball league yes. going around this law school. All right, so I've been playing fantasy baseball with my law school buddies for many, many years. It's a great way to stay in touch. And it causes you to pay attention to aspects of the season. It's a long season. But this is my objection to it fantasy baseball. It causes you to pay attention to some teams you otherwise wouldn't pay attention to. I don't to. care it about the Angels-A's game. You, but you should. No. You, you would have more joy in life if you actually cared about more than just the Mets games. And you'd have such a better sense of who all the players are out there. I mean, it does, above all else, if you're actually engaged in the league, you really pay attention to who the newest players are, who's declining, who's on the rise, who's good at what, beyond your home favorite team. Okay, here's the problem, right? You put me, if I play fantasy baseball and I don't have all Mets, if I have any other National League players ah, on my roster, loyalties. right? What? So I, I, I'm rooting for a game where the Mets win, like, you know, 11 to 10, where, you know, my left fielder hits 10 solo homers, but the Mets somehow <laughs> win. And so, like, it's screwed. So, so my problem you with... You don't want to muddy the signal of your loyalty. My problem with all fantasy sports is that you end up rooting for the people, for individual yeah. statistical accomplishment in team yeah, that's sports. A, that's a legitimate and, and laudable principle, so I, I applaud you for it. But? I think it can be managed by the fact that, well, first of all, don't draft, okay, so don't draft a bunch of nationals, okay? Don't create situations so, so don't where, draft nationals, Phillies, no, I said bunch. Marlins. I, 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 did, I said bunch. <laughs> and the reason why is that <coughs> if you have a team, a fantasy team composed of people from a bunch of different teams, the chances that you're going to find a situation where you have to very thoroughly divide your loyalties 
pretty slim. Also, your loyalties are plenty strong enough to feel okay about your one fantasy national not, you know, getting struck out by Noah Syndergaard. That's okay. You can live with that, even though you would have liked his stats, if I but had, he's playing if the I wrong had, team If tonight. I had the pick in the fantasy draft that corresponded with Bryce Harper being the obvious person to take, I would have a real problem drafting Bryce Harper. So trade out of it. Trade out of it. This but is everyone, a, but everyone who I play with would know that, like I'm, a, that like I, I, you know, they'd offer that's me like up to they'd you. offer me like Jay Bruce for Bryce Harper straight up, and I'd be like, hmm, interesting development. I, I think that uh, you'd it'd be up to you to have a poker face about this. Yeah. Well, do I have a poker face about anything, my friend? No, you don't. Okay. Um. So <laughs> as this is a one, I, I want to take a, a sort of funny shot at my dad, right? So, so fantasy <laughs> baseball, if you play it right, means that all of a sudden you're going to care about those random midweek games that nobody cares about right like the um my dad is the only person i know who cares about those games and doesn't play fantasy baseball like i'll call him at like 10 o'clock and i'll be like what are you doing like oh i'm watching the the angels and the mariners i'm like why yeah (laughs) well look i think that his i applaud his love of the game uh last question do you think this mound visit restriction business is going to do anything to speed up or make the game more exciting no yeah they need to do more or should they leave it alone? Um, I think they need to do more, although I would not start with, you know, one of the proposals being floated is to have, uh, it's, this is true in softball, right? So in, in women's college softball, when you get to extra innings, yeah, yeah, the, the inning starts role? with the runner on second. Yes, um, that's very interesting. So I like it for softball because there are ways in which softball is a much lower scoring game and you could have like a 37 inning 1-1 game. Baseball, I don't think you need it. Like, I don't think the I don't think the problem with baseball the not extra inning is games. extra inning games. No, it's, in fact, there's there's a certain drama you get once you get that's to right. extra it's innings. It's four hour long, nine inning, three to two games. Yeah, yeah, and the, and and the real way you fix that is cut down on commercials. Commercials are a big part of the problem, of right. course. Oh, but that solution cuts into revenue. Well, how about some in game? I mean, I would I would live with like a in game banner ad on my TV screen. Right, if it meant shorter commercial breaks between innings, mm, they should offer that option. Mm. All right. Um, on that note, I think we've. I mean, all, there's more to say about fantasy sports and why I think they destroy fandom in in general. But you know, we could have that conversation another time. All right. Stay safe out there. Adios.